back to Not Your Token Minority. I am your host, Tao, and this is an interview podcast that explores and celebrates the stories of the global majority. I had a very special conversation with this episode's guest around her personal experiences growing up in New Zealand as someone of South Asian background and her ongoing journey with discovering and embracing her personal and cultural identity. On top of her full-time job and master's studies, Neelam is also the producer of an upcoming production called The Kama Sutra Chronicles, which will be showing for a limited time in Auckland at the end of August. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. How's your day been going? Um, it's been going all right. It's just been busy. I kind of feel like I'm having two full-time jobs at the moment. I have my full nine-to-five and then as a producer, my production stuff going. And on top of that, you've also got your master's, right? Master's thesis, which has taken a sort of break. But right. my supervisor doesn't need to know that. Yep. <laughs> okay, well, why don't we start a bit about your background? So uh-huh. just to give people some context around who you are, where you're from, mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that, that I don't know, that question can sometimes be triggering, you know, who are you, where are you from, totally. sort of thing. Um, especially if you have, like, or have always lived in a hyphenated identity. So I guess I'm an Indian slash hyphenated New Zealander. Um, I was born and raised in New Zealand, but my parents come from West India. Cool. And when did they migrate over to New Zealand? Um, it would have been late 80s, early 90s. I wouldn't know the exact dates, but yeah. Do you know why? Um, I guess better life opportunities, um, family pressure. I know that my mum was sponsored by my aunt to come here. And you grew up in Auckland? or Mostly in Auckland. I did spend my high school years in Wellington and then I returned back for university. Yeah. Cool. And can you talk a bit about what your experience or your personal experience was growing up? It was, well, as a child, when you're born into, um, so when you have an immigrant parents, basically, you kind of lead a dual life. At home, you're this traditional kid who speaks the traditional language. You eat the food your mother makes. When you're at school, it's sort of an individualistic culture where you're out to do your own free will. Um, and especially in New Zealand where things are a little bit more laid back, so you're free to explore your wants and likes. But at home, it's sort of you have expectations. So it was always like walking between like a tightrope, one foot in each, not knowing where I'm going to stumble. That's such an accurate description and something I think a lot of children of migrants or like first generation or half generation kids growing up in a different society to the one that their parents grew up in. It's definitely an experience that they can relate to, I think. Yeah, you're constantly negotiating your cultural identity. It's always in a state of flux. It's never static. Yeah. Can you think of many instances growing up where you did clash with your parents? Um, many. My, so my parents are very traditional and when they moved from India, they obviously bought their traditional expectations, you know, that especially when it comes to woman or a girl child, that she remains at home, that she studies what her parents want to and there are expectations of her to be settled at a certain age and those things. I, growing up in New Zealand, sort of clashed with that because when it got to the 18 plus card issue, I didn't want to play that card on my parents, but I felt like that was my wild card that I played. I put my foot down and said I wanted to study media journalism. That's not a career aspiration that most Indian parents aspire their children to be. And also the fact that I was returning home to Auckland and not choosing to reside with them. So it was fighting for my independence, basically. Right. So your parents live in Wellington. Yes. I see. Okay. And what or how did that conversation go down? Yeah, it was a year long conversation. Um, It was... 
I don't know how to explain it. It was sort of an off on, off on conversation and you kind of had to do it in parts. There were days where they would be agreeable. Then there were days where you feel guilt, shame, the whole, you know, you want to leave your parents behind. Um, my parents were business owners. So as a child, I grew up helping the family business. So they had the expectations that I would remain in the house, go to uni and balance those duties as well. But me leaving home was almost like for them, me cutting them off out of my life. Yeah. And for context, do you have siblings as well? Yes, I do. Okay. And yeah. are you the, where in the... I'm the eldest child. I see. So yeah. does that bring with it its own pressures own as well? Own expectations. It's blasphemy to do anything, really, as the eldest child. Right. Yeah. And through this experience, have your parents shifted their own mindsets a little bit, or are they still very traditional? They are still traditional in some aspects, but my mother has sort of given my siblings more leeway. I guess it's, it was a lesson for both of us, and she also learned that, you know, in being controlling and imposing those cultural expectations, she sort of lost me along the way, and we don't connect the same way. And I think she doesn't want to lose that with my siblings. Because, mm. I mean, you've grown up simultaneously kind of justifying your parents' actions as immigrants. You know, it's the whole, they sacrifice their lives, they put food on the table for you, but they don't always know what's best for you. And I've always struggled with accepting that and forgiving that, but at the same time finding my own voice. Mm. Yeah. So what was school like for you? School was both an escape, but I was also bullied at school. So growing up in Auckland made it a little bit easier because I grew up in South Auckland. And at the time, South Auckland was full of all different ethnicities. You know, you had Pacific Island, Fijian, Indian, everything. But then when my parents shifted me to Wellington for my first year of intermediate, I went to a school of 60 classrooms to a school of seven classrooms. And me and my siblings were the only Indian kids in the entire school. So it, I stood out more. There was also typical... Racism, I guess, stereotypical stuff, um, curry muncher, the term you must have heard it, and name calling. And also because my parents owned a business, there was an expectation that I would go into that same line. Yeah. Did that experience affect your relationship with your own culture and background? Yeah, because as a child, because like I said, you're still negotiating, you kind of also feel shame and guilt. So you feel shame and guilt when you go home because you actually find aspects of your culture that you love. But when you're called out for those very things or just bringing something as simple as a rolled roti in your lunchbox at school and then, you know, people being put off by saying, oh, that smells or what is that sort of thing. And you feel shameful for eating that at school. But when you go home, you're happy to see it. Yeah. So were there instances where you kind of thought to yourself, oh, I wish I wasn't Indian? Um, yes and no. There were moments. Um, I know that some people in my family, especially my cousins, have had a stronger moments like these. But I, at a young age, sort of learn to reject that. I kind of put clear a boundary saying, you know, when I'm at school, I'm this person. When I'm home, I'm this person. It came at a cost to me later in life and I grew as an adult and started to embrace it more because I feel more shame now that I rejected it then or that I put clear boundaries when actually I have the best of both worlds. And I now have created a space where I can actually accept and choose which parts of each culture I want to integrate into my life and choose the values I want. I don't have to be either or. Do you know the journey that you went on to come to that realization? 
It came from little, little instances like, um, so my name is two syllables and I've had to anglicize it in the past, two syllables. Um, I used to work for a market research company and I remember we used to cold call to rural New Zealand and a couple of times I used to get asked by my peers, you know, why do you get so many surveys or why do people pick up your calls? And I'm like, maybe it's because I don't have an accent. And I don't mean that in a bad way to them, but because I have my natural Kiwi accent. But one of my supervisors asked me once that, you know, do you want to change your name? And I said, no, I don't want to change my name. Because even growing up in school, I've always had that daunting feeling before a roll call. You know when the teachers stop that it's your name that it's about to be called out. And people half-heartedly making an attempt almost seems like your name is unworthy. But for all the instances when people say, what's in a name? Well, my identity is in my name and it's important. So in the process of reclaiming something as simple as my name started to reaffirm to me that actually I want to embrace my culture. Yeah. And it's obviously something that you're very proud of now. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Nice. Tell me more about the decision to pursue media and communications? I took media studies as a subject in high school and I've always had an avid interest. So my parents owned a general store so we would get the Dominion Post every day and the first thing I would do is grab it and just read through, read about the world. Um, And I guess also because you're part of a culture that you don't know much about, you kind of look into things like movies, media to reaffirm and reattached to your cultural roots I guess so I was always interested and because growing up with immigrant parents at home things weren't said explicitly they're implicit or shoved under the carpet sort of thing you need to find a voice and I think journalism kind of gave me that so that's where my interest stemmed from. So I was awarded a TVNZ diversity scholarship so that played for my journalism tuition for three years and part of that scholarship was me having to work at TVNZ on the assignments desk for One News. Um, Just sitting in a newsroom was a clear indication to me that there were not many people of the same colour, voice, culture. Was that a concern for you throughout your degree? Yeah, it was because you didn't have any sort of role models as such, even in the media industry, um, be it radio, print, TV. There was just a lack of it. And yes, New Zealand has an obligation to Māori because of the treaty. And there are other communities like the Cook Islands Pacific. But what about Southeast Asians? You know, what about Asians in general, Chinese? And we are just as much as a part of New Zealand's culture as any other. Do you think that there is a solution to that? You can try. Like they say, there's always yes, no, and creativity. So when it comes to creativity, working on creative projects, which I do outside of work, giving platforms and access, I think. But also when people talk about diversity and inclusion, what do they mean? Like inclusion is encompassing everyone. But in a broader sense, what does inclusion actually mean? Because inclusion is about contributing, presence, participation. But how are you encouraging these conversations, these stories? You know, what are the platforms you're giving to POC to actually tell their stories? Yeah. And is that something that you and your role now are quite passionate about? Yes, definitely. Going back to not having a voice to now giving a voice or being that voice and advocating for. Mm. Yeah. Mm. In what ways? Can you give me some examples? Um, So with my theatre production coming up, I work on it as a producer. For me, it's like giving theatre as a platform. And the story that we're telling is a very Southeast Asian narrative. 
with a different approach, but it's also educating and unlearning in terms of culture because it's about the Kama Sutra, which is considered taboo in my own culture. But anyone that's actually read it will know that it's not just about sex. But we've had to teach that to our own community because they've rejected it, as well as educate people who are non-POC or non-Southeast Asian. It's a story about a married couple and the chemistry sort of fizzled out in the relationship. They're also struggling with their own internal, I guess, self-love, consciousness, bias, all those issues. And the wife starts reading the Kama Sutra and she starts discovering self-love, um, how to actually put herself out there, empower herself. I think one of the strongest voices and also my favorite character in that is Vasant Sena. Um, she's a courtesan, and her voice was used in the book without actually giving her credit. The problematic thing about the Kama Sutra is it's a book written by a man for men, but on experiences of women and sexual pleasures. This play is sort of a feminist spin on it, but Vasant Sena is your, the sexy, sassy voice that just empowers women, you know, and she's there to say, you know, why do you need a man? Like, yes, you do, obviously for love and whatnot but you don't need that's not the only thing like you need to love yourself first as well yeah and also just acknowledging that people with different sexual preferences as well like mm. men and women like heteronormative relationships yeah aren't always the you know, norm, the norm. Yeah. yeah but it's love yourself first mm. yeah mm. and you mentioned before about sort of people's perceptions of it being just about sex and mm. um can you talk a little bit about that Normally, I'll admit, even myself, and before I had read it or just flipped through the pages of it, thought, you know, it's a book about sexual pleasure. In Hinduism, we have these different pillars. So karma is one of them. Karma is pleasure, love, sex sort of thing. And it's actually an act that's encouraged. You know, people should have karma in their lives. It can bring happiness, but it was rejected when it comes in the context of Kama Sutra because people think it's just positions sexual positions that's it it's a guidebook but it's not and I'd love to learn more about the sort of process behind producing how did you get involved and have you always been into theater uh no I've loved going to watch theater but I never thought I'd see myself behind the scenes or actually producing um I don't still don't know what producing actually is. Actually, that was going to be there my was, next question. Okay. There's, there's no, you know, those books like Dummy for Producing. Yeah. Or, yeah. There was no book. I even Googled there's no book. But I kind of just learned. So a good friend of mine wrote this script. It's her story. It's her baby. And she entrusted me with it and said, you know, produce this. And I was like, okay, what does that mean? But initial steps was things like finding funding. So getting funding from council, looking at theater venues and seeing where the play would be best fit because it also depends on audience depending on the theater so that's how basement came into the picture then I guess it's all about putting the jigsaw piece together so there's different departments in production there's marketing set design costume there's the actual actors um, production itself is a department and then finding a director as well on top of that it's a lot of work <laughs> yeah it's overseeing a lot but I guess you're feel empowered because you're kind of in the creative process of everything and each of these little departments have their own creative processes so I'm learning like I don't know what costume and lighting design is like I thought it was just pushing buttons but it's not like you actually have to sit with the script and decide what scene needs what kind of light to set what mood costume says so much about a person's personality you can't just put anything on them even music 
And what have been for you some of the biggest learnings from this whole experience? So the biggest learning was patience, having patience, knowing full well that things will not go as expected and just flexing really quickly on what could go wrong. Having a good understanding and I guess networking of other people in theatre and different departments. So I guess my journalism background came in handy of being able to just approach people, talk to them and get things done. Having a vision um, because the vision is the end goal of what the audience are going to take away from it and what they're going to communicate. But at the same time, knowing which landscape you're operating in, being very careful of which playground you're playing in. So in this case, Auckland. Knowing what the Southeast Asian community here already is exposed to, and, st- and so in terms of theatre groups that already exist and the kind of plays they've done, and also being careful that with Auckland, yes, it's a melting pot of diversity, but you don't want to keep adding the same narrative. Like, you know, you're telling different stories, but you also have to be careful of how you're telling the story because of appropriateness as well. You can end up appropriating your own culture and you have mm. to be mindful of that. So in this instance, then, how have you guys become more aware of not repeating the same narratives over and over again and reinforcing stereotypes and all that kind of stuff? So the person who wrote this play, who is also now directing it, Shreya, she has participated in theatre productions with other cultural groups. So she's kind of been an active player in the kind of stories that have told. And I guess her experience also comes from being a migrant, living in New Zealand, working and understanding and telling that story as part of her own voice. It's also doing some research on what's being done, but being people who are often involved in such creative projects, you are already a part of those conversations. So listening, I would say. So and listening and observing, mm-hmm. yeah. And so what can audiences expect from this production? A bit of romance. I would say romance, definitely. Love it. Empowerment. I guess come with an open mind because the stereotypes that you have of the Kama Sutra or the community may or may not be challenged. It's not a typical rom-com when I say romance either, like prepared to be challenged. It could also be triggering in some way for people in terms of self-love. Yeah. How important do you think it is to have this kind of storytelling and representation for your community? Stories have also have always been an ancient way of passing on traditions and history, right? So it's something that's going to stick around for a very long time. So yes, it is important, it is crucial. If theatre is an avenue to tell these stories, then it is important. And what about you personally, with your media background, journalism background? Yeah. What has it been like for you to be able to contribute to the storytelling and representation? It's definitely allowed me to explore other aspects of my culture. Um, I'm still learning, like I'm learning about the Kama Sutra through this production, It's kind of been a motivator as well, and it feels more empathy as well, because it also makes you think about the privileges you've had, even while I've had different privileges growing up here. But realizing that privilege isn't the perks or the benefits I've had, but actually the absence of barriers and obstacles. And when you look at the Kama Sutra that way, then you think that, you know, it's, yes, it's a book that's been passed down in ancient India. It's part of the Vedas. But actually, when you unpack it, what can you take away? What can you learn from it sort of thing? Yeah. So what are some of the biggest things that you've learned? Definitely 
Pay more attention to your mental health is definitely one of the things I've learned. And that's something I've always struggled with because, again, that was a thing that was taboo growing up. Prioritizing your own happiness, self-love again, but also going on a journey and discovering yourself. Yeah. Yes. And you might not always like what you discovered too, but figuring out why, the why. It's like taking the challenge, right? And mm. then learning from those challenges and being uncomfortable. Yeah, well, it's getting rid of your own subconscious biases. You have to learn to let go of that. Yeah. yeah. And that can be so difficult. Yes. And of course, it's easier to just stick with the status quo and not change and not grow. Yeah. But who wants that? <laughs> it's another layer because you've already been doing that yeah. growing up with a hyphenated identity, you know, simultaneously reaffirming everything, grappling yeah. to know where you belong. But in the end, it comes down to this, that you're forever going to work between two worlds. You might as well have gratitude and accept the totally. best parts yeah. yeah and embrace everything about it i think we all have different experiences um even migrants that have moved here have left behind their home they will have a totally different experience but when you're a first generation or child of an immigrant it's inbred to you from day one that you know where do i belong you know yeah. too foreign for here too foreign from home when i've gone to india i've been othered i feel like an outsider i'm never going to belong there but i've never felt like i completely belong here as well yeah. yeah, 100%. I think so many people who listen to this will be able to relate to that because I'm, mm. I'm the same. When I go back to China, I just I don't feel like I belong there. Mm. And then you get questions around, I don't know how well you speak the language, but like for me, it's like, why can't you read like Chinese characters? Like, yeah. why do you speak with an accent? Like all that kind of stuff. And it really feeds into those insecurities. And language is important too. It is a part of identity. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you brought up mental health, which is a huge topic, especially for our communities, because I think it's quite similar with Indian and Chinese cultures where mental health is just not something that you talk about. And I don't know if it's like a mix between like the culture and like the generation of mm. our parents or what, but it's definitely very toxic. Mm. Yeah. There's a lot of stigma attached to it, especially from my culture's point of view. Um, and I'm not going to say this is everyone's experience because some people might have really understanding parents who would have prioritized if they'd been through the same thing. But it's you grow up with this kind of disfranchised guilt, I guess, because, again, it goes back to my parents made sacrifices, so they went through pain and suffering. So my pain and suffering is not valid. It's not worthy or my pursuit of mental health is not worthy, basically. And I used to tell myself this narrative, um, especially when I moved out of home. That first year was very difficult because I had my mother calling me every other day saying, you know, you've left us, you've abandoned us. But at the same time, I was trying to play my pa find my place in the world, basically. It was emotionally exhausting. And I, I would, to be honest, I would say the last decade of my life is spent just in survival mode. It was fight or flight. I didn't really pay attention to my mental health. I was always pursuing my career aspirations and journalism, never actually having time to sit down and actually unpack this intergenerational trauma, I would call it, or breaking that generational cycle. It's definitely taboo. I decided to go to therapy 
And I decided that, you know, I can't force my parents to go, but I can make that choice and break that cycle and go to therapy and find, navigate myself and claim some agency in the spaces that I operate in. Do you think that without that therapy, you could be in the place where you are now, like in terms of your mental health wise? I don't know, honestly. Um, I don't know what would have become of me if I had carried on this way. I would have maybe, well, I did actually eventually burn out. And it wasn't until I allowed myself the grace to fall apart and unpack why I was feeling the way I did. And also, in a way, forgiving my parents. It's that idea of, yes, I forgive them, but that also doesn't mean that I accept the kind of behaviors and what I went through, but finding a fine line between there. Is this a conversation that you've had with your parents as well? Not yet. I've tried in the past, but I guess they don't understand things like boundaries. For them, that's not a concept, especially in Asian cultures. What are boundaries? You know, if your parents are telling you something, you listen and you do as you're told. But standing up and just saying no, um, not being a people pleaser where this all came from. It's hard. It's really, really hard. Um, you go through most of your life second-guessing yourself and also fearing rejection. Yeah, fearing rejection and always seeking their approval. Yeah, well, you seek validation. Yeah. But like when you grow up in New Zealand, you see this culture of being individualistic and there's less power distance. People are easy to approach. But in my culture, I can't approach an elder and tell them about my mental health. It's yeah. just not a thing. Yeah, yeah. So... That's obviously still a journey and a work It's an progress. ongoing journey. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What would you say in terms of insight or advice to others? Because honestly, I think all of us <laughs> yeah. feel the same way and have the same struggles. Like for me personally, I often hold a lot of guilt in terms of spending time with my parents because mm -hmm. I live just around the corner. So it's so easy to go over and it's just them. I'm an only child. So there's a lot going on there. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there are so many others in the same position. So in terms of giving like advice for others, what would you say in terms of moving on from that, you know, position of guilt and the way I see it um, I'll give an example the way I've imagined this is imagine a younger version of yourself running towards you um, for me I see a little girl and I see the love that she didn't get and sorry this is gonna make me emotional um, so the imagine a little version of you running towards yourself and imagine what would you tell her like where you are in life would you give her a hug and when you give her the hug what are the emotions that you're going to feel and then you'll start to understand and see all the times that your <clears throat> experiences weren't validated by your parents all the times that you were unloved you felt like you didn't belong and then start to work backwards and unpack well why do I feel all of that and I think at some point it is still important to have the conversation with your parents. It may not go the way you want it to, and it might not always bring peace because I've walked that path. But it's about understanding that you've at least held the door open. It's not a closed door. And that conversation can go both ways. Mm. They can walk in the door at any time. Mm, yeah. Thank you for that. Thanks for sharing. Speaking of family, um, you mentioned that you have, or rather uh, your grandmother has had a really significant influence. I was raised by my grandmother. My parents were owning businesses when I was younger, so they weren't around much. So it was my grandmother that I followed around everywhere. She was my best friend. My grandmother taught me a lot about my culture just by telling me everyday fairy tales, stories, even cultural or religious texts. I would watch them with her. 
But also it was more when she talked about her day-to-day life back in India. And for me, that kind of empowered me or gave me resilience. You know, here is this woman who's left behind all of this to come here, raise me, you know, when she's already raised about eight kids, but here I am as her grandchild and assimilate herself into New Zealand society. Um, my grandmother never learnt to fully speak English, but she learnt some words and it was always interesting to hear her speak in Gujarati, which is my mother tongue, and she would filter in words in English and I'd be like, oh, you know, where did you learn that? And she's like, I know what it means, mm. sort of thing. But she gave me the courage and strength to be who I am today. In what kind of way did you learn that resilience from your grandmother? Resilience in the way that... Life's a journey. You go through different seasons. When my grandmother talked about her life back in India and then when I saw her physically assimilating here in New Zealand, she explained to me that, you know, these are the different seasons of your life and at some point you will also grow, grow up, be at different points in your life where you might be married, single, find a job, whatever. Her resilience to me was in the way that she soldiered on. Um, I'm not saying I put that on a pedestal because soldiering on can also lead to burnout. But it was in the way that she carried herself and her culture and accepted it and tried to educate others on it in New Zealand and find like she found a balance between living in New Zealand but also carrying on her Indian heritage. And was that what made the difference between for example, you and your grandmother and you and your parents in terms of that guilt that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Because you don't talk about your grandmother in the same way that you talk about your parents in that respect. Yeah. Definitely my grandmother was easier to talk to and she often called out toxic behaviours in the family as well. Um, And because she was an elder, they listened. But it was interesting coming from my grandmother because she was observing. When she came to New Zealand, I think she left behind some preconceived notions and she was open to seeing what the culture and society here is and assimilating and seeing someone who's an elder in the family do that it kind of sometimes made me wish my parents would take a cue from her and do the same my parents have been unlearning a lot with the experience of us kids growing up now society is also changing as well now that there's more representation and communities of different southeast asians in new zealand but it's a journey that you have to go for yourself, on yourself, and I can't force them to go onto that journey until unless they're ready. Mm. Yeah, mm. but I've kept my end of the door open. Yeah, for that. Yeah. yeah. As we mentioned at the start, you're also doing your masters. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? So I had a bone to pick um, with my <laughs> masters, and that's what started me on this journey. It is about also again reaffirming where I belong. So my masters research is about. It's talking to the Indian diaspora in New Zealand. This includes people who are permanent residents, citizens, or others like me who've grown up in New Zealand but have Indian heritage. I was never taught to speak Hindi or Gujarati formally in a school situation, but I'm fluent in both. At home, my parents actually speak Gujarati because they're from Gujarat. But I picked up Hindi solely from watching Bollywood films. Oh, cool. And I thought there must be others out there like me, maybe. But it gave me a constant conundrum because I can speak Hindi and assimilate because I don't have an accent when I speak that. But then when people see this very Kiwi side of me and this accent, 
they kind of reject it and they label me into one corner. So that's the bone I had to pick. I wanted to know if there were others who were going through this constant negotiation stage of cultural identity and whether films have helped with that. Oh, okay. So you really tie it with Bollywood films? Yeah, Bollywood films, activities that they do creatively. So performing in New Zealand, um, there are some dance schools that reaffirm their identity through cultural performances, food festivals. um, And Bollywood is actually a hierarchy of Indian cinema, but Hindi cinema has different aspects and there's also regional cinema. So when the world thinks about Indian cinema, they think about Bollywood, but Bollywood is not it actually. It's a global construct. Right. And it's a hierarchy, but it's not a formative label for all of India's cinema because India has over 21 languages. So each state has its own regional cinema. So I wanted to know if other people have looked at either regional cinema or Bollywood and what kind of narratives and themes help them to reaffirm their identity. And I grew up watching some very typical films, which we call NRI films. So NRI stands for non-resident Indian in a formal sense. But growing up as first gen, we kind of reject it by saying not really Indian is what it stands for for us. Right. Because we don't fit in, right? Mm. And when we see these films having stories of NRIs living abroad, missing their cultural values, it makes us nostalgic. But we didn't know that these films were actually being made with a nationalist agenda for the NRA kind of audience viewership. Have you come to many conclusions so far? I've interviewed about 20 individuals in a focus group. And from some of the kind of answers that I've got... They reaffirm that Bollywood is like a fantasy. It's not reality. Some people use it as escapism, some as exoticism, and some people just kind of view Bollywood as, yes, it's one representation of what happens in India. It's all colorful, but many of us know the reality that that's not it. Right. And some people reject it because they just say, you know, that's not my culture. I'm Kiwi. Why do people reject For them, it kind of, it becomes triggering because they may have grown up in families where the Indian culture wasn't imposed on them as such. They were allowed to explore their individual values growing up in New Zealand. So when they see these films which show very family values, traditional values, they reject that because to them it's, I guess it's constricting or it constrains them in a way that, you know, you always have to listen to your elders. Um, you always have to participate in this cultural festival, adhere to what your family says, society's obligations. But in New Zealand, you have free will. And they've grown up in that environment, so they reject Bollywood. Going back to your journalism journey then, would you say that you're still in journalism now? I think ingrained in me are journalistic values. I'm still someone who wants to tell a story and be a voice. And I think that's what's fueled me to get into production and theater as well, because it's another way or platform to tell stories. But my compassion does come from being a journalist. Yeah. Yeah, I relate to that so much. It's why this podcast exists. Do you think that you will dive more into the sort of theater side of storytelling then in the future? Maybe. I do also want to go back and do some writing of my own. Um, I've got to finish my own thesis first. So mm. that's where that research and academic academic writing, I would say, um, and look at more things to do with culture and media and film and explore how that affects communities and society. And also the new generation coming up. It's really interesting when you do research to see 
the kind of conclusions researchers have come to with youth back in the day compared to migrants now and those changing landscapes. So when I started doing research for my master's, I read some articles that were done in early 2000s. And I think around that time, New Zealand has always said that the first early immigrants from India were either from Gujarat, Bengal or Punjab. So a lot of families in Wellington who were from Gujarat were interviewed, um, Punjabi families. But now when you look at Auckland, there are areas where there's South Indians, um, different areas of Gujarat, Punjab. It's evolved and those conversations have evolved. It's not when those families first came, they were more about having an opportunity, building a business and earning. But now you've got students who are coming to upskill themselves, get degrees, short skills, and also take that knowledge back home, not necessarily stay here. Right. So those conversations of diaspora are changing. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay, well, um, we'll wrap it up there, but thank you thank so you. much for joining me and sharing a bit about your perspectives, sharing about the, your upcoming production, which is so thank exciting. Um, what are the dates for that again? 24th of August till 28th of August at Basement Theatre. Cool. And people can book tickets through? Yes, tickets have gone on sale, and if they use the early bird um, promo code, comma, it's a discount. Perfect. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having this conversation thank you. with me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I have so much admiration for Neelam's calm and measured approach to some challenging and triggering topics. I think she articulated so well the struggle and juggling act that many of us third culture kids navigate on pretty much a daily basis. If you are interested in seeing the Karma Sutra Chronicles, you can get your tickets from the Basement Theatre website. I'll pop a link in the episode description. 